0: Today is December 10th, 2010. This is a recording of the memories of my life starting from date of birth, July 30, 1931.
1: On July 1, 1931, U.S. President Herbert Hoover places a one-year moratorium on war debt payments. The first ice vending machine is introduced in Los Angeles. You get 25 pounds for 15 cents. On July 4th, the first fireworks are held at the Cleveland Stadium. On July 24th, a fire at a home for the elderly in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, kills 48 people. On July 28th, the White Sox score 11 in the 8th to beat the Yankees 14-12. to 12. And on July 30th, Joanne Voss, an American model and actress for Fort T.I., Vice Squad, and Sabrina, was born in St. Albans, New York.
0: My name is Charles Edward Tuck. I was born at 4'35", Sin Street, Kanawa, K A N A W H A, County, West Virginia. 435 Centre Street was the home of my grandparents, Ed Samuel Everett and Lana Thomas Tuck. In 1931, Most children were born in either their homes or the homes of their grandparents. It was a practice of having a midwife deliver the baby, and then a doctor came around a few days later and checked the health of the baby and recorded his birth with the county. In my case, my grandmother delivered me and they recorded that I was born on July 31st, 1931. Not the 30th, but the 31st. Our family doctor, Dr. Gamble, made his rounds, took my birth, and recorded it with the county. But he recorded it as July 30, 1931, and not 31. This went unnoticed for the first 17 years of my life. Now, one may ask the question, how did I enter school without the school seeing the difference? At that particular time, the government issued what was known as census reports. And the census report Shows that I was born in July 1931. So, by recording or reporting to my school that I was born on July 31st, was it in accordance with what was on the census report? Myself, being young, and all of us. Accepted and thought that the census report was a birth certificate, which was not true. I never knew the difference until I got, when I graduated from high school and got ready to join the military. At that time, the military would only accept birth certificates as proof of age. Of course, as I said, I thought the census report was proof, but that was not accepted by the military. So I obtained my birth certificate, which was a delayed delayed birth certificate and showed that I was born on july thirty, not July thirty first, as our family reported. Rather than taking the time to have my birth certificate changed, I went ahead and accepted the date of the 30th. So most of my records, starting in 1949, will show that I was born on July 30th. Prior to that, they will show that I was born on July 31st. So do not confuse the dates of my birth. There's a reason why it's recorded like that. For me, it was a win-all situation because I was able to celebrate at home July 31st as my birth date. While the military and government gave us our birthday off, which was recorded as July 30th. So I celebrated two birthdays on the 30th and the 31st. And in lots of cases, received presents or greetings on both dates, or half the people with. Greet me or give me presents on the 30th, and then there'll be the family who will celebrate and give me presents on the 31st. So I was happy with having two birthdays, and today, even my sister will say, Butch, what day were you actually born on? My mother even asked me once. What day were you actually born on? I was there, but I don't know the date I was born, okay? I only go by what was reported. Some of my early memories are from living on Bullet Street. At the time I was born of course everywhere in this country there was, seg- there was segregation and jim crow jim crow laws applied
1: the jim crow laws were a collection of state and local statutes that legalized racial segregation named after a black minstrel show character The laws which existed for about 100 years from post-Civil War era until 1968 were meant to marginalize African Americans by denying them the right to vote, hold jobs, get an education, or other opportunities. Those who attempted to defy Jim Crow laws often faced arrest, fines, jail sentences, violence, and even death. Black codes were strict local and state laws that detailed when, where and how formerly enslaved people could work and for how much compensation. The codes appeared throughout the South as a legal way to put black citizens into indentured servitude, to take voting rights away, to control where they lived and how they traveled, and to seize children for labor purposes. The legal system was stacked against black citizens with former Confederate soldiers working as police and judges, making it difficult for African Americans to win court cases and ensuring that they were subject to black codes. These codes worked in conjunction with labor camps for the incarcerated, where prisoners were treated as enslaved people. Black offenders typically received longer sentences than white equals, and because of the grueling work, often did not live out their entire sentence. During the Reconstruction era, local governments, as well as National Democratic Party and President Andrew Johnson, thwarted efforts to help black Americans move forward. Violence was on the rise, making danger a regular aspect of African-American life. Black schools were vandalized and destroyed, and bands of violent white people attacked, tortured, and lynched black citizens in the night. Families were attacked and forced off their land all across the South. The most ruthless organization of the Jim Crow era, the Ku Klux Klan, was born in 1865 in Puluski, Tennessee, as a private club for Confederate veterans.
0: Within Charleston, there were three separate housing areas or districts where blacks usually lived. There was the west side of Charleston, there was the east side, and then there was the downtown or central district. My grandparents lived in what would be called the central area which was Sin Street, and most, most of the prominent black people in the city lived on Sin Street, and it was basically the center of the black society. Bullet Street was in what is known today as the Triangle District. That was the east part of Charleston. Our home was right at the land which separated blacks from whites. Our next-door neighbors, I guess you could consider it like a buffer zone between the blacks and the whites because there were Italians, Syrians, people from... uh, creeps so part of the world. Many of my playmates at that time were the Italians and Syrian kids. Our next-door neighbors, their name was the carrier. My mother often said that the most difficult thing in her life was explaining to me when I got ready to enter elementary was that I could not go to the same school with my friends who were Italians and Syrians because they went to white schools and I had to go to a black school. She said that I could not understand why there was a difference. it was difficult, it really hurt her to have to tell me that we were black people and we had to go to separate schools. My early childhood friends were next-door neighbors, Pauline over street, and Paul Brown. That was at when we were living at four, at seven thirty-five. I'm I'm sorry, back up. We were living at 713 Bullet Street. Prior to that, we lived at 709 Bullet Street. And my earliest memory there, because I was only three years old when Bobby was born, Bobby, my younger brother, has the nickname Bobby, and there's a story behind that. On the night he was born, my father gathered my sister, Greta, and I on the front porch, and he asked us, did you see that bird or swan that just flew over the house? And me, as dumb as I was, I searched the sky looking for this bird, and I didn't see any. And I, I wasn't paying attention to everything else he was saying, because I was searching the sky for this bird. But he went on to say that this swan had just left a little baby brother for us, and he was, we would have to name him. Greta spoke up and said, let's name him Fanny. Fanny was one of her friends that lived there on Bullet Street, and she liked her a lot. My father told her, Greta, Fanny is a girl's name, and this is a little boy. So I spoke up and said, let's name him Bobby Lee. Bobby Lee was the name of a popular cap that was worn by little kids at that time. And I had a Bobby Lee cap, which I like. And that's far where I got this name, Bobby Lee. Let's name him Bobby Lee. Well, my father had, as far as we know, already decided what the baby was going to be named. He just was playing with us to the point and us think that we were naming the child. My father, to. I said Bobby Lee, he said, Okay, we can name him, call him Bobby Lee, but let's name him Wesley after his great uncle and Thomas after his grandmother's family. So Bobby was named Wesley. Thomas Tuck, Wesley, after my grandfather's brother, Thomas, after my grandmother's family, her name, and of course, Tuck. Bobby Lee became his nickname, although Lee was dropped, and he became just known just as Bobby. My mother, for some reason, throughout the years, always referred to him as Bobby Lee. From 709 Bullet, we moved to 713 Bullet Street. 713, we had probably the largest backyard of any houses around there. Plus, my father worked for the city and there were playground t- units that were intended for city playground that found their way into our backyard. So we had garage swing, not the ones you go down and buy the department store, but the ones you see out on the city playgrounds. And things like that. We had the large swings, we had slick slides, we had uh, basketball hoop. we had different <laughs> balls, basketballs, footballs, all types of boxing gloves, you name it, we had them. So every kid in that district would come to our house to play. Our house, our our backyard, was a playground for all the kids. We had more units, more things in our backyard than the school had on their playgrounds. When I first entered, I entered the first grade, it was named, my school was named, the Booker T. Washington Elementary School. Most people call it the Washington Elementary School, but the actual name was Booker T. Washington Elementary. I'm just estimating, but there were probably 32 of us that started in our class together. Out of that amount, there were only about seven of us that went all the way through school together and graduated from high school. Now, I don't know if half those kids moved out of town, if they dropped to slower classes, or completely dropped out of school. I'm not really sure. West Virginia had a law at that time that you had to attend school until you were age 16. If you missed two or three days of schooling, they sent a Trump officer out to your home to find out why you were not attending school. If the parents were sending you to school and you were skipping going somewhere else, they picked you up and sent you to a home where there was like an institution or shelter, and there you were forced to attend classes and school until you were 16. Kids knew how bad some of these shelters or industrial homes or whatever, how bad they were. So they stayed, whether they like it or not, in the elementary schools. This, of course, leads to the fact that kids were sitting in second, third grade. They were 13, 14 years of age. They could not pass anything else. They were just sitting there occupying space waiting until they were 16 so they could officially drop out of school. During our recess periods, I was sort of intimidated and never went out into the schoolyard and really played. I hung out close to the school building and maybe talked with a couple of friends, but I did not go out there and play because there were these kids that were 13, 14, 15 years old that were rough kids. I mean, it was a bad neighborhood to start with, and some of these kids just lived. Well, in fact, one of the guys in my class, Reggie Martini, was a professional boxer at that time, and he was fighting out of a stable located at Huntington, and later Pittsburgh. Reggie was one of those, like some of the others we had nicknames for, Greedy Guts, and some of them, they were much older kids, and they just sort of, they, they had no business being in those schools with kids like us. By the time I reached the second grade, I was being used as a teacher's assistant. I was going back to the first grade as well as to the second grade and trying to help kids learn how to add and subtract and read and write. Also grading papers and things like that. But our family schedule went something like this during that period of time. We went to school the five days of the week. And then Saturday, every kid from maybe a mile around, was gathered in our backyard and we played the drop this hunky behind your back, ring around the roses, hide and go, hide and seek, you name it. We played all types of games, skip rope, just had a good crazy time, it was a lifestyle that kids around here now do not have the opportunity of experiencing. We had good times. On Sundays, we went not to church but to Sunday school. Our parents did not feel the church was the place for us at that age. So we went to Sunday school. From Sunday school, we went to my grandparent's house, where she always had ice lemonade or something waiting on us, and we visited with them for about an hour. Our visits, this was included Greta, myself, my brother Bobby, and my youngest sister, Nancy Jane. After our visit with our grandparents, we came home and we had a bite to eat. And then we went over, we were permitted to cross a train bridge that went over to the west side of town. There was about a four or five foot walkway alongside where, side where the trains pass, where you could actually, a pedestrian could actually walk. So we were cross this bridge. And I, I have to say one other thing. they had wooden planks there. And many of these wooden planks were missing where you could look down at the river up under it. So we kind of skipped from one point to another to get across this, to the other side of the river. Where we would go was to a large field over there that had violets and different type of flowers, dandelions growing. And we would pick valets for our mother. Also, we would search for four leaf clovers and we would spend a couple hours over there doing that before returning home and preparing for dinner and sitting on the front porch. We did, we were not permitted to go and play. We had to sit there, we had to visit our grandparents, had to go to Sunday school, and we were permitted to go try to find flowers for our mother. After dinner, we usually walked over to the train station. Now, there were two different train stations in Charleston. We would go over to the Chesapeake and Ohio CNO train station, which may have been about three or four miles from our house. We would walk over there, watch the evening train come in, and watch the passengers get off. And then, after the train left, we would walk back home. but that's the way our Sundays and Saturdays are finished. During our time there at Bullet Street, my best friends were Pauling Over Street, as I said, and Paul Brown. We had some real heavy snows back at that time, and of course, we built our forts, and we had snow battles that ended all snow battles. I mean, we threw snowballs. During those other months when no snow, we would play cowboy and Indian. Okay. Or we'd play in our backyard. Pauline's best friend was the girl, Kathleen Woods, who was also one of our classmates. And Kathleen would come over, and of course, Pauline and Kathleen loved playing hopscotch. So we would hopscotch, jolt, our front sidewalk. And we did other games, mostly rope jumping and, and things like that. Life was not all that rosy. I saw death and I saw hunger. The two I saw two deaths. One took place on Christmas Day maybe nineteen thirty eight. Christmas of nineteen thirty eight when our electric went out, and the electric pole was about five feet or so in front of our home. And I was sitting there at the window watching the landsman up there repairing the lines. when he made a mistake. And all of a sudden, he electrocuted himself. I saw him, his body basically fried, and he followed over. He had the belt around his waist so long, and he was just hanging there, turned blue. I was hanging there, dead. Of course, my mother right away shut his right out of the room so we could not see too much of it. The other one was a man whom my father permitted, a white man. He permitted him to move his trailer on the back part of our yard and raise vegetables and things and plant food and in turn share his plants, his food, the goods with us. So basically, he was a sharecropper. This white guy, yeah, sharecropper, who lived on our property, had been in an argument earlier in the day with the black man. I love being around my mother and watching her cook especially when she made cakes, I was there to lick the batter or I would beat the eggs or whatever, but that would help her make her cakes. And still right today, I can tell you exact measurements and the ingredients that go into making a cake from scratch. Well, this particular day I was there at the window beating the batter for a cake when all of a sudden this black guy appeared in our backyard and he had a shotgun. And he stood right there about the a foot from the window where I was sitting with back to the window and he called this white guy, told him to come out of there. He had to call him a couple of times. This white guy came out with an axe in his hand, and he basically charged after the black man with this axe, and the black guy pulled the trigger and blew the head off of this white guy. My mother goes right away through her apron, over my face, and got me out of the room. But that was the second death I have seen there by the time I was eight years of age. In 1940, we took our vacation to Natural Bridge, Virginia, to visit with my mother's father and his family, which were the Diamonds. During our visit there in Natural Bridge, one night my father came there in a rush. Mister. D- Mister. Russell Dabney had driven him there in a the car, and they told us to pack real quick. We had to leave town. Mister. Dabney drove us back to Charleston. And from what I understand, not knowing the full story, but there was a scandal that took place there in the city, and my father was involved in it, which included money and what have you. Reporting reporting of government payments to their employees was a part of the disclosure laws and every year they printed in the paper how much each individual was making. My father, Earl Catoch, was one of the highest paid employees of the city in the state of West Virginia. I asked Greta recently, why is it he was making so much money and we were living in conditions that were almost uh, well, were second-class conditions? She said that he was giving all that money to the Republican Party. So his pay was going basically to the Republican Party and we were (laughs) we were on relief or starving while the Republicans were making out. Nineteen thirty one of course when I was born right after following that, of course we're doing the years of depression. So we like everyone else around there, received bags of food, which were the brown flour and the pinto beans and the molasses and stuff like that, from welfare, and that's basically what I eat. I, I am sick, uh, I'm sick and tired of beans, and that's why I do not like beans today. I do not really care for cabbage. I don't care for lots of those things because that's all we had to eat back there at those days. A pot of beans. If we had some meat, it was bologna. But those were our meals. Here's a little sad story. My father had a car furnished to him by the city. And, of course, I was going to show off one day and take Pauline for a ride in his car. I must have been about eight years of age. So we got in the car, and and back in those days, I don't know if cars had keys or what they had. I don't remember, but I know that uh, I turned the switch to start the car and the car was in gear. I didn't know anything about gears or anything like that. And Of course, when I turned it and the mission went on, that car jumped about two or three feet and scared both of us to death. We jumped out of that car and went running, and we never got close to that car again. That was my first and only attempt to drive that car. I know my father must have recognized that the car had moved, but he never said anything at all about what, asked anything at all about what may have happened or how was it that the car was in a different spot from where he left it. My father left his job in 1940. Uh, I don't know if I could say he was fired. I have no idea. But that scandal caused him to leave the city. And we moved back in with my grandparents, Samuel and Lina Tuck, at 435 Cent Street. To me, those are the, that was the saddest day of my life. I can remember... It had a little red wagon, and my mother would pull me around in that wagon. And she pulled that wagon, and took me all the way up to Synth Street. And I was thinking how I was losing my friends and the one place I really loved. And I was 713 Bullet Street. That hurt me more than anything else. Woodard Street had been a lot more than just my two or three friends I said there. It was the whole neighborhood. There was one kid, Johnny Chick, who had a sw- brand new swing bicycle that everyone was envious of, and I wanted myself a swing bicycle because of him then there was Bubby Morris. Bubby had, they had a large front yard. And he had all these little tin soldiers. And he had them all over in battle formations and things. And and he played with his soldiers. And I go up there and I would watch him move his little soldiers around. And he would let me play with some of his soldiers. And there was Genevieve Winston lived around the street. Her parents never let her come out of the front yard. There was a gate, a fence there. And if I go around and say hello to her, she would be inside that fence and I'd be standing outside talking to her. One of my classmates, Marston Cowbell, mother, invited us over as a new student in first grade, she invited myself, Boy Blue, Claude Curry, I believe Jimmy Morris, got four of us over for lunch. That was the first time I'd ever been invited to someone's house for lunch like that. So, like I said, there, there was more than just the one or two friends. It was a whole... Neighborhood as a whole, living where all of us played together and had a really good time together. In Sin Street, uh, there were people who were neighbors and things who were older. The only kids that I knew of close to my age lived right across, the street, right across the alley from us, and that were our cousins, who was my grandmother's nephew, John Miller. Johnny Miller had three kids John, Evelyn, Evelyn was actually old, Evelyn, John, and James. And we would go visit with them every once in a while. And Sundays, there were Sundays that we were invited to their house for dinner. was given a job as, as they, they called it, an agent, city agent, at the Washington Manor. Washington Manor was the starting of these government projects. It was the second one built in the United States. Washington Manor was split in half. On one side whites, on the other side there were blacks. Again, with the black side, again, We were all one big family. These people that were in there were poor people. Were the ones that over on Bullet Street had not been poor like that. These were people who got into the manor because they did not have adequate housing. They were low, low income. no income but they were hand-selected so they were all basically good people or nice people and anything one of them had they shared with another I grew up in the manor spent nine years there from 1940 to 1949 that's where I started actually playing basketball and touch football, and even tackle football, it was there in the manor. Our first home in the manor was on at 612 Meredith Court, M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H, Meredith Court. From Meredith Court, we finally moved into a larger apartment on Davis Court, six twelve Davis Court. All of us knew each other in a manner, and as I said, everyone looked out for each other and cared for each other. And in one book written by Tony Brown, the talk show host on PBS, <clears throat> he said that he liked to run to the, um, the manor because all the pretty girls in Charleston lived in the manor. I wouldn't say that was true, but there there were nice looking there were some nice looking girls there and there were some awfully nice families in the manor. I joined the military from there when I was living in the manor. Let me back up and say that I said earlier that that's where I learned to play basketball and everything. Uh, I also, I lettered, received my school letter for varsity football, varsity basketball for my schools. And I threw lots of it to learning or competing there in Washington Manor every day with other kids. Uh, In addition to playing those sports, we also had what were called paddle tennis courts. Uh, Girls played out there right alongside us there were girls that there's no way I could beat and playing paddle tennis. And some of those girls were just as good in basketball as any of us guys. And they were accepted. I don't remember, none of them ever played tackle football with us. But basketball, paddle tennis, handball, uh, those sports...
1: And, and run
0: track, but uh, the track actually the girls competed against girls. But some of their times were just as good as the boys. For instance, this girl from West Side, Marin Stovall. Stovall's, those girls had times as good as or better than most guys around there. I considered myself a really good broad jumper, not as good in long jump, but broad jump. But our best long jumper around there was Jimmy Morris and Marion Stovall could out jump Jimmy.
1: In this next section, my father speaks about the time he entered the military. This is also when he first started to experience racism and hate towards the black people from the whites.
0: When I enlisted in the military, I right away I was sent to San Antonio. Texas for my basic training. This was during the days that uh, blacks and whites were still separated in the military. But they were starting to integrate and had what they call experimental platoons, where they had six blacks in a group of, of, of 60, 60 whites and six blacks. I was put into one of the experimental groups. You can tell by the names in our group, the blacks, how they had held us over. Uh, We went with what was known as casual companies, and then they would select six of us, and you could end up in one of these white outfits. So they were going straight down the line. And my group, The Blacks in our platoon named Simmons, or R, Uh, both Simmons, Ojeda, Quinto, uh, Warner, Tuck, and one more, B6. But all of us, our names, right there at the end of the alphabet. There's no A, B, no other name beginning with A, B or anything. We have been held there until they got the 60 white guys to put the six of us with. I completed basic training there at San Antonio. And... uh, I I was asked what type of work I wanted to do in the military. Well, I wanted to be a civil engineer. So I said, I want to go to school to learn surveying, which was at Fort Bellevue, Virginia. They didn't have any openings at that time, according to them. So my next choice, is sounded good, radar. I didn't know anything about radar, but okay, radar. So I was sent to a radar operator school down in Bloxie, Mississippi. Mississippi in 1949 was not the place that a black person from basically the north wanted to go. The life was totally different. I'm talking about. I was scared when I got off the train, and that by the time I left there, I was happy to leave. I had a couple incidents that really came home. One, I was walking down the street. Uh, and There was a doctor in town. Dr. Love, and Love had two daughters, and one of them, I don't know how I met her at church or what have you, anyway, I started basically dating her, and I went over, picked her up one Sunday, and we were walking down the street, she was showing me the town, I came upon this white man, must have been 80 years of age or some junk, had a cane, and he got close to me, he he said, get off the street, nigger, and you see me coming, and all over hit me with this cane right across my shoulder blade. took me home and her father and them had to cool me down because, well, first off, I never experienced anything like that, and I was upset, ready to get myself killed, in other words. My second experience like that, I was in town one day. I don't know if I was there to see her or what I was doing in town. But that evening, I was headed back to the base, and some young white kid stationed at the base were going through training just like me. Stopped me asked me if I was headed to the base, and I said, yeah. And he said, well, let's take a taxi together. How good. So he held, he held down a taxi cab, and I went to get in the taxi with him, and that was a no-no, no-no, no, no way. No, Black, you're not supposed to be getting in a taxi with a white person like that. This driver, taxi driver, left, but I, I imagine he got on the phone and called some of these roughnecks and told him what happened because a couple blocks later, this kid had said, well, let's walk to the base. The Two of us started walking to the base, and all of a sudden, two cars came. One blocked off one intersection, and one in front of us, and then the one intersection behind us. And they jumped out. it must have been about 10 of them uh, started running towards us. And what I heard was this one calling, I want the nigger, I want the nigger. Well, I was grabbed, and a, sw- a blood knife was put to my throat up by my ear. The blade, the porn of it, was touching the skin. And I was told, if you move an inch, nigger, I'll stitch you from ear to ear. But ended up, the rest of them proceeded to beat this young white kid for what he had done. Fortunately, the military police came and they witnessed it just some of this was happening, and they rescued this kid and took the two of us to the base. But. It was my second experience, and I knew that I had to get out of that place. When I left Keesler, Mississippi, I was given a choice of bases, radar. There were not that many radar units across the country. There was one up in Presque Maine. There was one at Miami Beach, Florida. There was one at Roslyn, New York. There was one in uh, Prescott, up uh, in Minnesota. There was one Albuquerque, New Mexico. And there was one in Washington State at uh, Moses Lake. So I naturally took Roslyn, New York. When I reported in at Roslyn, I was told a good thing about being colored or black, because they, they, could, they had openings for blacks at all their bases. So they asked me which base I would like to be stationed at, and I had a choice. Of about 12 other bases that were under their command. These included throughout Pennsylvania and then Gap, Pennsylvania, Connorsville, Pennsylvania, up in New Jersey, Highland, New Jersey, places like that, Santini, New York, Montauk Point, New York, down Manassas, Virginia, and everything. So I could. I took Washington, D.C., which Washington, D.C. was uh, Gravity Point, Virginia. I took Gravity Point, Virginia and arrived there, which was the Washington National Airport. And rather than being, although I was actually assigned to those aircraft control and warning squadron, I worked with Mats, Military Air Service, there at the National Airport. So I worked there until uh, I got to visit some of the other sites, get uh, orientation on their operations, for instance, Highland Park, Highland, New Jersey, uh, Connersville, Pennsylvania, I went to those places, uh, Santini, New York, and, but I was trying to get overseas, that was one of the main reasons I joined the military, was to go overseas, travel, see the world. So I was constantly volunteering for overseas. June 1950, the Korean War broke out. At that time, the military, blacks were still segregated, as far as I, like I said. And the funding and money was split. There were appropriated funds, which were for all the troops. Then there were your unappropriated funds, and those were split. The whites had their unappropriated funds, and the blacks had their unappropriated funds. Well, the white guys, they had a big beer party, and they all got drunk, and that- like idiots, like most of them did, you know. But we, when we had our party, we went out to Sparrow Beach in Maryland. And we had a good time. There wasn't no alcohol or anything involved in us. We went out there to the beach and nothing else. We met the girls, talked with girls, and, you know, tried to make out with some girl. It was late there at night at return to the base. And I guess I had just fallen asleep. Back in those days they had what they call a fire watch, a guy who would walk around the barracks, make sure, reported any fires or anything like that. And they had what they call a CQ, a charge of quarters, and the charge of quarters reported to the fire guard that we're at war get all the troops up. So, on the day of June twenty seventh I was falling asleep, and all of a sudden, this fire guard came in, and they had these big, uh, I don't know what they are, about 50-gallon drums. that were empty. That's where they had the at the end of our the hut where we slept. They uh, using the trash cans. but well, he took his when they patrol. the he issued it uh, like a billy club when you, when you were on this fire watch. So he came in. He took the lid off of the can and started banging it in around on the inside and screaming, "Rear war! Rear war! Get up! Rear war!" That's when we were out. Notified about the Korean War. uh, Maybe about 3 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, something like that. So we got up and they uh, eventually issued us our weapons, and I I think they gave us six rounds of ammo or something like that. And we sat around in those. Uh, the story was that uh, someone, state police, had spotted a car with what you call a D.F. Direction finder on it, and he had honed in on our radar site, and they figured that we were going to be hit because of the radar site there at Washington National Airport. As a consequence, they finally decided that they'd better move, uh, close down, close down the site and move up, up in the hill to give us a mobile, a mobile unit. So about 8 o'clock that morning, at 9 o'clock, we're on our way, we're going through Washington, D.C in these military 6 by trucks and it just, it, 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 it still, today it still gets me how we, we are thinking about a Great War and the city was so peaceful and calm. You had these people that were there sightseeing like or people on the way to church and they're just casually walking through the streets and what have you. And here we are in our uh, battle fatigues with ammo and rifles and things and we're going up in the hills supposedly because we're at war. Where we ended up was up outside of Laurel, Maryland, in the hills, and we set up a mobile unit there. And I was, I was one of those who monitored the flight and an aircraft entering and exiting from Washington National Airport. We started the very next day, this being posted of guys going overseas, well, again, I'm I'm doing lots of racial talk because that that was a part of the life at that time. So don't think that these are my own biases or what I'm saying, these are the feelings of other people or things that were said that I am only making record of. The majority of the white guys there in our fed, oh, they were happy going to war. They were going to get a chance to shoot and kill some, some of these slant eyes. That's what the talk was. They they wanted to see how many slant eyes they could kill. They were happy. They were happy for only about a week, because next thing they knew, they found six guys from our outfit. When I say our outfit, I'm speaking of our air division, not necessarily from 647. But from our, uh, our unit, our division, that have been captured and their hands are tied behind their backs and they've been executed by the North Koreans. And that stopped or shot them through the back of the head. Well, when they found, when they heard that, right away. The mood changed. (laughs) They don't play fair. I don't want to go over there. (laughs) They don't play fair. Yeah. But every day there was a list posted of the next five or ten guys scheduled to go to Korea. I'm interested in going over there. I was interested in traveling though and I wanted to go to Japan and about that time because of some other things that had happened I was working for a Captain Bonner in West Virginia and it was through playing basketball on base there and I talks with him, and he heard about some of the things that happened to me that uh, he said he could get me an overseas assignment, and I said, fine. So he came to me, he called me about the next morning or so, and said, I got you on a shipment to Alaska? 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 I don't want to go to Alaska. It's cold up that place, you know. Well, I had a number of guys that had been to Alaska before. One, one of my best friends in the military, a guy, uh, Alan Wilmore, had been up there. They all told me, hey, Alaska is not as bad as you think. So, they convinced me to go to Alaska, which I decided, okay, I was going to Alaska. Within a couple of days, I was telling Captain Bonneau I would go to Alaska or that salmon in Alaska. He came and told me, hey, you don't have to go to Alaska if you don't want to. Everything has opened up. If I can get you a in anywhere in the world. So you name it. Germany, Japan, any place. Just name where you'd like to go and I'll get you, I can get you on the shipment there. I guess I'm one of these people that uh, once I make up my mind, I'm going to change. Uh, okay, fine. I then have been convinced that Alaska was a decent place and I would enjoy up there. So I said, no, Alaska. So Off I went to Camp Stowman, California, and I joined a replacement to go up to Alaska. And we sailed on the Sergeant, a ship named the Sergeant Woodford. W O L F O R D. We went, I went to Alaska. We docked at Whittier. At Whittier, we took a troop train up to Fairbanks. Well, I had always heard about the midnight sun, but I never really. I guess, fully understood what they were talking about. Where the sun (laughs) shines all day and all night, basically. When we talked to Whittier, it was rainy, foggy, gray sky, just a terrible day. And we lived on the troop training uh, this troop trains, you wouldn't believe it. This is something from back in the 1800s. We headed north, and I woke up, and God, the daylight, the pretty blue sky, and uh, oh man, I felt that I had overslept. I looked at the watch. It was only about 2 o'clock in the morning. But something must be wrong. It couldn't be just 2 o'clock in the morning. But it was. That was at midnight sun. My first experience of seeing where it stayed light almost all night, and in the time, it was dark all day. I worked. I've I spent uh, oh, close to two years there in Alaska with the 449th Fighter Squadron. I worked mostly in the two crib. Uh, and uh, I had lots of good memories of Alaska, I've entered uh, as a non-matriculated student at the University of Alaska, Fairbanks, took college algebra and a couple of other courses. (laughs) Now let me back up and say something else. The reason I was not one of those first people to go to Korea because when, all through high school I had always wanted to go to West Point and I had even prepared myself. I studied the battles of the Civil War and uh, You know, when they talk about how General So-and-So outflanked another General and things like that, Uh, I had studied all that and how he had moved his troops in order to outflank the other. So, uh, military stuff was one of the things I was interested in. (coughs) I had uh, our family doctor, Doctor Mars. That's given me the exams to see if I could pass both the physical uh, as well as, when I say physical, that's able to, uh, my body was okay. Height, weight, all that, heart, everything, fine. But not only that. But you had to be able to, to, I believe it was 17 inches. You had to be able to uh, jump above your height. You You had to be able to broad jump a certain number of feet. All that kind of stuff. I was tested uh, by Dr. Mars on all that. So I had passed all that. Uh, My senator... Kilgore, I tried to get an appointment through him, and his first remark to me was, well, your father's Republican, he? A and he Kilgore was Democrat, yes, he said, well, how about you? And I told him that uh, I still, uh, I had not committed to any party, and that our person was basically independent, I thought was the best person I would go for. Anyway, that started a relationship with Senator Kilgore. Um, I joined the military to travel and see the world and tour a bit. But there was another motive then, and that was every year there are so many of the military people at large are picked for appointments to West Point. Or if you don't get to West Point, they will send you to prep school to prepare you for West Point. So I took the exam just soon as I arrived. And in my first station at Washington, D.C., I joined in and requested to see my commanding officer and asked him if he would recommend that I take that exam for West Point. He recommend me for the appointment. So I took the West Point exam, and any time You have taken that exam, and you're waiting for the outcome or anything like that. They cannot send you overseas. So that kept me from being sent to Korea during the early part of the Korean War. I took the exam, and maybe... I'm not sure it was February, March, maybe March of 1950. And the war broke out in June of 50. My entire life has always been full of lucky decisions like that. Now, back to Alaska. I don't think I did that well on that exam. Well, first off, I was not selected even for the prep school. But I realized that the little bit of math I knew, uh, I did not really know college math. So that's what I went to the University of Alaska as a non-matriculated student. Studied more math. Still thinking of getting into West Point. I completed my time there in Alaska. And when we were sent up there, when I went up there, there was a time that they did not understand and know fully what the Russians were about to do. I went up in April 51, 1951 to Alaska. So this was the spring after the Korean War had started and the foals were taking place up there in the Bering Sea so the Russian ships could come up there. And the Russian fleet was gathering over there at Vladivostok. They did not know if those ships were there just to supply their troops there, or if they had planned an invasion of Alaska. There were those in Washington, of course, who said this is the start of the Third World War and Russia's going to invade and all that kind of stuff. So we were forced to take, we had to take, um, I took the Arctic training, I took the infantry training and all that in preparation for maybe something really taking place. Nothing ever happened. The Russians, uh, they, they were there for another reason. Uh, I I was sent out to St. Lawrence, Allen, right off of the, about halfway maybe between Alaska and Russia, where we set up a quick radar site to monitor them. But... Yeah. Another thing that happened: I was due to get out of the military in June, June 6, 1952. Bobby was graduating from high school in 1952. My cousin in Washington D.C. wanted. Favorite cousins, Maxine McKissick, was graduating in June 52. So the three of us, uh, I know the McKissicks didn't have money, they, they were poor just like the rest of us, but some kind of way her mother, their mother, scraped up money because I was going to West Virginia State. So, they were going to let her come there too with me. So, the three of us, Bobby, Maxine, and I,
1: were going to enter
0: West Virginia State together in September 1952. President Truman extended all enlistments for one year, which meant I would not get up until. 1953 of June 53. This just destroyed all of our plans, and that's what turned me against the military. That if you're in the military, your life belongs to someone else, not to you. You have no control over what happens or anything else. And I did not like the idea of someone else planning my life for me. Bobby decided, well, he I went there, being it up, joining the Air Force. Maxine went ahead and entered West Virginia State. By then, I didn't want anything to do with West Point or the military. They started releasing us from the military that had this extra year. They started releasing us in November of 1952 those who were overseas. And being in Alaska, I was considered overseas. That was not a state at that time, that was a territory. So I became one of the first ones that was released from the military that had been extended by the Korean War. Uh, I forgot my classification. Or well, I was classed as a... Well, anyway, because I've been held over like that and everything, I was classed such that they could never, I had no obligation to the military whatsoever. And uh, I could not be called back. And I never had to serve again. All that sounds great, except when you go out there and look for a job, and they asked us, our military class,
1: Well, that's it. Sorry for that abrupt ending. I think it was probably my fault. I may have inadvertently deleted the rest of the recording, which saddens me because this is really the only recording that I have of my father and his life story. Which brings me to say that if you haven't done so already, record or at least get to know your parents a little bit more than mom and dad. Get to know their life story. It can be very interesting, but it's what I feel is very important. And what else is important Is that you guys give me the opportunity To do these podcasts So thank you very much for Joining me in this one today And for the rest of them From here on out If you can do me a favor I ask that you spread the word You follow, you donate You do whatever you can Or whatever you're willing to do To help me grow this channel I want to keep it going indefinitely If you also want to be a guest let me know we could bring you on the show and you could be a guest until next time keep your chin up put a smile on your face and keep on motoring on down that highway of life have a good one guys bye-bye